All right. Well, today we get to study Deuteronomy 19 and 20. And so let's open up our Bibles there. As we look at Deuteronomy 19 and 20, at chapter 19 is a chapter about justice, and chapter 20 is a chapter about war. Um, if you want to have maybe some handles to remember it, um, chapter 19 is a, a chapter about being fair, and chapter 20 of Deuteronomy is a chapter about being in the fight. You know, we as Christians and we as citizens in this world, and we're going to see as a society and personally, we need to have these convictions in our hearts to, to always be fair and to know how to fight. And we have this spiritual battle that's taking place. And Paul the Apostle said at the very end of his life, I have fought the good fight. You know, sometimes I wish I didn't have to, man. And sometimes I I'd wish, you know, that, you know, you could take a break. But you know what? It, it doesn't happen until our life is over. And that's why so many of us, we go through the struggles that we go through. I think more than anything else, though, the fight that we fight is oftentimes against ourself. I, I think that's our fiercest foe is ourself. You know, the enemy is there, but if you resist him, he can't touch you. And the world is there, and they have their flow, but we're, we're much stronger with God's Spirit. But the one that seems so close, and the one I think that we struggle with the most is, our, is ourself. But today as we go through uh, a study, I think God wants to encourage us to, to know. He wants us to be fair, and he wants us to know how to fight. And as we just surrender to him and allow him to do the work in our life, it's so cool how everything comes together, and you, can, you and I can enjoy this land of victorious Christian living. Um, we read, first of all, here in Deuteronomy 19. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit that any manslayer may flee there. Here we see Moses speaks of what we call the cities of refuge. Um, if you want, you can study Numbers chapter 35, verses 6 through 34, and that's where we read most about the cities of refuge. Um, Moses did also mention them in chapter 4, verses 41 through 43, on how they had already established three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan. But now Moses mentions to them regarding the ref cities of refuge that were going to be established on the west side. You know, wh when you look at this, the way it worked is that if an individual accidentally took a life, it's accidentally, if it wasn't premeditated, if it wasn't out of anger, if there was no history of hatred among them, then what we see is that these cities of refuge were places where the manslayer could flee and where he was to remain, where he would be safe until the death of the high priest because God didn't want any innocent blood to be shed. And, we're, and again, we're going to see the main theme of chapter 19 is justice. We see that. And so... We read kind of the explanation here in verse 4. It says, And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. 
Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursuing the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for yourself. It was a place where this guy who accidentally, you know, took a life, uh, no premeditation whatsoever, could run. And God said, I want you, we read there in verse 3, to prepare the roads, to make sure nothing gets in the way, that there's always the clarity. As a matter of fact, according to rabbinical tradition, there would be signs everywhere. This is the way to the city of refuge. They couldn't be too far. They had to be in places where it would be proximate to them. The roads had to be prepared. The cities of refuge had to be selected and then separated. Why? Because this guy was cutting down a tree and the axe head slipped from the handle. They don't make them like they do today, right? And boom, it hit his co-worker head on. And so what happens? He dies. And so the avenger of blood, back in those days, they did not have police officers. The family member would be the avenger of blood. He's the one responsible for justice. And so the guy who accidentally caused the death starts running, and the avenger of blood is after him. And he runs like crazy. Where? To the closest city of refuge. And what we see was God's way of justice and safety and really even an element of appeasement in God's way of wisdom. Because not only would he be safe, again, remember it was uh, innocent blood that you know this guy had shed, but also it, he had to stay there in the city of refuge until the high priest died. And so it, it's kind of God's wisdom. I, I just love reading this. Again, we don't have this for our society. This was Israel's a theocracy. But you know, when you read these things, a lot of them, man, it's like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. You, know, you kind of wish that, that things would be that way in some of these things that we see as we read through this. But then we read, look what it says in verse 8. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Again, the underlying theme is justice, and God providing the cities of refuge where the manslayer could run. That way, no innocent blood would be shed you know, there in the ground and defile the land. And so God says, these are the cities of refuge. I want to make sure those places are clear. And if by chance you guys live a life of obedience, what I'm going to do, God says, is I promise to bless your land. I will enlarge your borders. 
As a matter of fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, that's a very important verse for us to, to know because uh, there in Genesis 15:18, God told the Jews that I will give you the land from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates River. God said, if you live right, and what Joey said today was just really so clearly true in, in, in God's word, that if you love the Lord, you will walk in his commandments. That's what we read right there again in verse 9. If you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk always in his ways. And we see, you know, just over and over again, we've been going through this in the men's study in First John. You read that. It's like, if you love me, you'll obey me. And, and I remember when I was a first Christian, I didn't really know that. I really thought that loving the Lord was like this feeling I had. I really thought that loving the Lord was just kind of like this sentimental you know, thing that I have inside of me. And, you know, God knows I love him and he knows my heart. And, you know, so I can kind of do whatever I want. And it, it was just really the objective truth of God's word that got a hold of me and taught me and said, no, that's not how love is as a Christian. That, 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 that God told me very clearly, if you, if you love the Lord, you, you walk in obedience to him. And what God said is that, you know what, I've got this land for you. When, when you add it all up, you guys, it's 300,000 square miles. When you look at the land of Israel today, um, what you would see is that they should possess half of Iraq and portions of Saudi Arabia and all Syria and Lebanon. And, I mean, this massive amount of land, 300,000 square miles. In their highest point under Solomon, they had 30,000 square miles. Today they have 8,000 square miles. Such a small percentage of what God really wanted to give them. Now, the context right here is just saying, listen, if you happen to get that big, I want you to put three more cities of refuge. Okay, that's really the context here. But there hidden in the text is this amazing truth that's true for all of us, congregationally, nationally, personally. That if we love the Lord, he will broaden our, our borders. He will enlarge, you know, our, our land. He will bless you. This is all the things that he wants to give you. And the Bible says no good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. You see, but a lot of times we don't do that. And, you know, I just, I just share that with you guys, you know, not to make you feel bad, man, but to encourage you to know that God blesses obedience. And if you live for the Lord, he will blow your mind. We don't want any woulda, coulda, shouldas, you know. We don't want, in the end, for God to say, man, I wanted to do so much more with your life. But you just wouldn't take heed. And it's not like God's asking us to do crazy things. You know, it's not like he's asking us to stand on our head, you know, until whatever turns red. It's not, you know, like stuff like that, you know. He's not asking us to do anything that would hurt any one of us or anyone. All of his commands are motivated by love and concern and care for us. But I think so many times, man, we miss out. Here we see the Lord say, listen, I want to expand your borders. You know, and I'm not talking about le being legalistic with God. I'm just talking about being in love with God. 
You guys remember that uh, prayer, the prayer of Jabez? And I know people kind of went kind of crazy over that thing, but it's still it's still a good a good lesson for us. Over in First Chronicles four nine and ten, it says about this guy Jabez. He was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called him Jabez, saying, "Because I bore him in pain." That'd be a weird name to have their whole life. Uh, there's pain right there, man. You know. Because he, you know, he really hurt, I guess, when he was born. And, but it's this stigma that he carried around with him all the time. His name was Jabez. His name was Pain. But then, you know what? And we're reading here in the genealogies there. It says, And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. There it is. Enlarge my territory. That your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain and so the bible says that god granted him what he requested now when we pray that prayer and we're you know seeking after the lord it's not that we want land you know physically man i pray that that's not really what it's all about for you guys you know i mean if if god gave us land as a church that's cool but the only reason we would ever want land as a church would be so that we would enlarge our borders and our sphere of influence that's all that matters now, we don't need physical land for that. The Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants with just a little. It's all up to him. The main thing is this, to enlarge our borders. To me, it means, Lord, I want to reach more people for you. I want a great influence. I want it to be deep. I want it to go far. I want it to be real. And when you have that in your heart, it's so cool because God then begins to you know, work and you're living that life of obedience because you know that, you know, we're in Christ, you guys. And I don't want to mix anything up. You know, we're Christians because of the blood of Jesus. We're saved because Jesus died for us and we placed our faith in him. Positionally, you are perfect. But now practically, God wants us to walk worthy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having that heart that says, Lord, I, I embrace the fact that you have embraced me. Lord, I thank you that I'm accepted in the beloved. And I thank you, Lord, there's nothing I can do to make you love me more. But Lord, I want to love you more. And as we have that heart, it's so cool because God, God changes us from a person who was just a pain you know, you're a pain, you know. And then God says, you know what, I'm going to change your life and that's not going to happen anymore. You will be used by me and you and you won't cause pain. You know, and here Israel had that promise. I'll give you 300,000 square miles. Today they have 8,000. One day they'll have it in the millennial kingdom. But man, they missed out on so much. Jabez prayed for it. If we pray for it, if we obey for it, it's so cool what the Lord will do. You know, the Lord Jesus gave us that vital principle in Luke 19:17 that God entrusts more to those who are faithful. And so God told Israel, if you love me, a love that means you live for me, then I'll bless your boundaries. 300,000 square miles of land, and then you'll need to add three more cities of refuge and again all this was for the purpose of justice god didn't want innocent blood to be shed but what if they were a murderer 
And we read that next in verse 11. It says, but if anyone hates his neighbor, and we could just stop right there just for a second, because with New Testament light, if you hate anybody, you are already a murderer. That's what Jesus said, right? But anyways, right here we see if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall ascend and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. If the man was indeed a murderer, God said, Listen, your eyes shall not pity him. But they were to deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You know, and that's God's way of just keeping the house clean. You know, again, we've talked about this, how this would not only be punitive, it would also be preventative. You know, nowadays we have guys sitting on death row 20 years. It doesn't really deter murder too much. But what we see here is God's rule for his theocracy. It was his rule for society. And he shares justice in life. He shares justice in land. Look at verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You know, back in those days, I guess they didn't have like the dimensions and the city records and things like that. And the way that you knew whose land was whose was they had these huge rocks, you know, in the the different parts of the land. And so moving landmarks would be the equivalent of stealing property. Uh, William McDonald said a landmark was a stone placed in a field to indicate the boundary of one's land. And apparently these would be moved secretly at night to expand once farm. You guys would never do that, would you? That's weird, huh? Imagine that. Oh, I'm going to get some more land. And you just kind of like little by little, you move those rocks. And, uh, and it's crazy, you know? And God says, you're not supposed to do that. As a matter of fact, he, he took this very seriously. In Proverbs 22:28, we see this again. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Repeat it again in Proverbs 23, verse 10, verbatim. Do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. Again, God repeats things. They're repeated so we won't be defeated. He says, I don't want you to do that. As a matter of fact, later on in Deuteronomy 27:17, he said, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And you might wonder, would people actually do that? Yeah, Job talks about that in Job 24 too. Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. People are crazy. People are wicked. God sees all these things. And just, again, they're about to go into the land. He's giving them the rules which would govern their society. And he says, this is how I want it to, to be. Very clear, very straightforward. God wanted justice in the land. And, you know, I really encourage you guys to be people who are fair. You know, it's cool to have, you know, we've we got to have our friends and, you know, praise God for that. And we have our family and I praise God for that. But always be fair. Always. Always be fair. Always be just. 
You know, I know some guys, some husbands, they, they, they'll throw out justice, you know, in, in order to side with their kids or, or even sometimes with their wife. And, you know, we have to be real careful with stuff like that. I know some moms, they'll go to the school and they'll say, hey, it's all your fault, Mrs. Teacher. And, you know, it's not always Mrs. Teacher's fault. Sometimes our kids, sometimes your kids, you know, they're, they're kind of wound up, man. And, and, you know, we really need to make sure that as Christians, that as God's people, that we are completely fair and completely just. And I love the scripture in Amos 5.24. It says, but let justice run down like water. I love that. Let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. One person said this about justice. It's the hope of all who suffer and it's the dread of all who are wrong. You know, all those people out there and sometimes people in the congregation because somebody's not fair or not just, they suffer. And so it's the hope for those who suffer. It's the dread for those who do wrong. Justice is very important. God says, listen, I don't want no murderers, no robbers. And then he says, I, I don't want any liars, especially within the context of legalities. These would be, you know, perjurers. Because look what it says in verse 15. It says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of one or two, two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Again, in order to maintain justice, it couldn't just be your word against mine. It couldn't simply be one witness. No, we read this in the Bible, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter would be established. One guy said this, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. You know, thank God, by God's grace, we have the capacity to be just, but we have the inclination not to be, especially apart from the Lord, huh? I mean, when you're in the Lord, you know, to be a perjurer, to me, it's just like, wow, why would you do that? You know, uh, unless I guess you're trying to get out of something that you're in. But we read this over and over again in the Bible back in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. And we know that this principle still stands even in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18:16 in the context of church discipline, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. You know, and I shared with you guys before that the rabbis would always listen covering one ear, right? When when one of the husband comes up, oh my wife, you, man, she does this and this and this, and so he would literally cover one ear cuz why? There's always two sides to a story, huh? And that's why you got to be careful that you don't make the, oh, man, I'm going to get him. And, you know, next thing you know that this person you thought was so sweet is, is actually lying to you. You listen to the other side of the story before you make a judgment. As a matter of fact, it's been said that there's three sides to a story. There's his side, there's her side, and then there's God's side, right? Because <laughs> we all see things in a, in a, in a distorted perspective, huh? That's why we got to take it to prayer. But there's got to be two or three witnesses. We read again in... 1 Corinthians 14.29, about two or three prophets. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, two or three witnesses. In 1 Timothy 5.9, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two 
or three witnesses. You see, it's all for the reason of truth and justice. And that's so important to God. One person said that justice is simply truth in action. And we read on here in verse 16, it says, If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And again, it's God's way of of just maintaining justice and purity within a society. And I see this, you know, a lot of it here, you know, wishing it for our country, but even... Even for the church, you know, this guy's lying and he's saying something. God says, listen, if they're lying, I want you to punish them with the punishment they intended to give to that individual. And I don't want you to have any pity upon them. Now, you read that and you're like, that's kind of harsh, huh? You know, and, you know, and we're going to see later that personally Jesus makes it different when it's a personal situation. But when it's a congregational situation and when it's a a, a national situation, when it's a societal situation, I really believe this is the way you got to do it. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that if you don't um, follow through with your threats, then the people won't take any of these laws seriously, any of the, the holiness aspects seriously. If there's nothing, if there's no church discipline, then you're teaching the people to disobey. You're teaching them that. You know, Aaron, what was the problem with Aaron? He couldn't restrain the people. He couldn't restrain them. And sometimes we as leaders, when we look at God's law, we have to restrain them. Otherwise, you know, it's just human nature. People go crazy. Remember with Eli? Remember his sons? He wouldn't discipline them. And what did he do? He just kept threatening them and he just kept, you know, talking to them and verbally disciplining them. And that's not enough. You know, the verbal threats and disciplines are not enough. You got to take action. You got to spank. You got to remove. You got to make those types of decisions. That's where Eli went wrong. And so he died and his sons died because he didn't do it God's way. You know, and for those of you who are parents, don't beat your kids. Don't, you know, give them any bruises. Um, You know, take the rod of discipline and the seat of understanding right there. That's why God gave them padding. Um, Get it while they're young. Establish authority because if you don't establish authority while they're young, you'll never be able to teach them. And if you can't teach them, you can't coach them. That's why the Bible says do it when they're young. Okay? But don't go any farther than that. Deuteronomy 19 talks about justice. And so you're like, hey, Manny, I like verse 21. So that means if someone knocks out my tooth, I can knock out their tooth. Is that kind of the way it works? (laughs) 
Well, you know, on an individual basis, Jesus taught differently. As a matter of fact, let's shoot over there real quick to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we see in verse 38, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You see, what we read in Deuteronomy 19 is called the law of retaliation. And it was the prerogative of the civil government to maintain order in a nation. In modern governmental actions, it's largely been replaced with monetary damages. So if you were to take someone to court today, you know, let's just say you caused their arm to, you know, you know, be cut off because of your negligence, that, you know, you there as an employer, then they would give you monetary compensation for that, right? That's the way it works nowadays. They don't cut off your arm, but you have to pay for that, right? But on an individual basis... Jesus here teaches his disciples to return good for evil. You see, nationally, civilly, we see the necessity of giving proper compensation. But in the New Testament, Jesus said it's to be different. He said, they hurt you, they harm you, they hurl insults and accusations. And it's not just a tap, it's a slap. What do you do? You know, I'd almost rather get socked than slapped. I'm not sure. That's probably a close, you know, thing right there. But, you know, to get slapped is just, it's humiliating. It just, it just hits our pride, right? And so we're like, you know what, I'll slap them back, right? Justice. I don't get mad, I get even, right? But God said, no, for us as Christians, personally, we deal graciously and we deal mercifully and we deal patiently we're to be like the Lord is with us you know I think in looking at this tonight we learn how a country is run nationally but we also learn how a Christian is run personally we don't have the precepts right here for us personally but we've got some principles to be just to be fair and even now towards the end to be gracious and patient and God says I want you to be fair and I want you to fight. And we're going to see back in Deuteronomy chapter 20 now a little bit about the fight. I wonder, you know, if you guys here, just if I could interview you, you know, how many of you were taught how to fight? You know, how many of you, like, you know, some of you gals here are like, I, yeah, my wife wants to do Kung Fu San Fu, I will not let her, man. No way. Because some of you know Shelly, huh? And you, <laughs> you know. Uh, she would practice on me, but to learn how to fight, you know, to defend yourself, I guess, is very important um, in the spiritual realm. And, and this is how we do it. Look what we read here in Deuteronomy 20. It says in verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble. 
or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. You know, and in looking at this, we know this is literal, that they were actually going to be in a battle. Think about that. Now, some of you guys here, you served in the military, and you've been there in the battle. You've been there in the front lines. And so you know exactly what he's talking about right here. And some of you guys here, you've been in fights, you know, literally fights where you had to, you know, defend yourself. Or for some, maybe you were, you know, not a Christian, and you were just going after someone, you know. And one of the things that you know that's important, and we see it even in boxing and some of these you know, matches on TV, is that, that whole aspect of right off the bat, intimidation. That right off the bat, you know, what they want to do is it's mind games. They want to strike fear in you. Because they know if they can strike fear in you that they will have the advantage. And just as that's true, you know, physically, it's also true spiritually. You know, that as we we engage in this battle and the enemy comes against us in cunning, crafty, creative ways. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I know I've been there, man. There's a temptation to be afraid. You know, and and God says, that's the one thing you cannot do. That's what he says right here over and over again. You know, you go out there and think about it. You see horses and chariots and people. They're more numerous than you. And usually they know that's the, that's, that's the very first thing you look for. Well, do they have more than us? Are his biceps bigger than mine? I and mean, we like right off the bat, we look at certain things, right? Is this a mountain too big to be moved? I mean, this doesn't, God doesn't normally do this. You look at yourself and you've seen that, you know, you don't have what it takes. And, and you know, you just start looking at things through the lenses of man. And God says, listen, when you go there, and I want you guys to know as Christians tonight, when you go there, do not be afraid. And he gives us a simple reason why, for the Lord your God is with you. And he said he would never leave you nor forsake you. He said he wouldn't. I think it was uh, FDR in his inaugural address. He said, uh, there in the midst of the Great Depression... He said, the only thing we need to fear is fear itself, right? Now, for us, the only thing we fear is God. Other than that, no one, nothing. We need to go forward. We need to fight. And the reason why we don't have to be afraid is because God is really with us. You know, there have been times in my life where I know without a shadow of a doubt, even recently, there is no doubt in my mind that the devil or the demons, this is a thick spiritual battle that I'm experiencing and I see what the devil's doing sometimes I see it he's there and he's there and I see it and it's very clear sometimes not always but sometimes it's very clear and God says listen I want you to know and then he gives me these promises he gives me this confidence you know what I'm not afraid I see the devil and I see the way he's struck and I see even the way he's touched and I see the things that he's doing. But I'm not afraid. And I go and I pray and I say, Lord, what the devil intends for evil, God, you use for good. And it drives me to prayer. And it drives me to, be, to want you to even be more real 
to be realer. I know that's not a word, but I've been thinking about that. Lord, I want to be even more real. I want to be even more sincere than I've ever been in my whole life because I know that the devil's attacking right now. And I, and I thank God for that. It's God's grace, but I think that we need to have that, that confidence, you guys. You know, here we see. God says, listen, don't be afraid. I, I brought you out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into the promised land. God took us out. God took us out of that land of Egypt where we were lost. We were blind. We were dead. And, and God's going to take us home. God's going to bring us forward. You know, the Bible says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I find confidence in that. And I rest in that. He says, man, when you guys are on the battle, the priest goes and he tells them, and he just, you know, stirs everybody up. Don't let your heart faint. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble. Don't be afraid. Why? Because the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Notice it says right there, to save you. And God says, listen, this is what I want to do in your life. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. And there you are, and here you are today, and I don't know what's going on in your life. But, you know, all of us, all of us are facing some type of foe. All of us are. And there's something that's impossible. And the enemy's coming in. And like I said, he's cunning and crafty. And he's very creative. And, you know, you wonder, well, how can I win this battle? How can we possibly win when our enemies abound? They surround us. There's giants in the land. We're grasshoppers in their sight. The odds are against us. Yeah, the odds might be against us, but God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us, right? Isaiah 54:17 says no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Yeah, but Lord, I see this and it looks pretty sharp and it looks pretty crazy and Lord, he says, listen, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And so we got to trust in the Lord. Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the cross. We trust in Christ. Not even in our own, you know, righteousness. Not, you know, there's just no way we could because none of us are good enough. I trust Christ. I trust Jesus. I trust God. And as our trust is there, you know, it's so cool what we see. The other day I was reading this with my family in Second Chronicles 14, 11. What did King Asa do when a million men came against him? Think about that. A million men. It says in Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need a lot. All he needs is one willing to trust, totally trust the Lord. You see, all that matters is that God is on our side. So you better stay on his side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And through the Lord, we will prevail. Here he's speaking to the army, and he wants them to win. 
You know, and if you can visualize that again, you know, nationally, you can see that personally. When you come back to the national aspect of it, part of winning the war is weeding out those who are not real warriors. That's what it says next. It says in verse 5, And then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Well, what man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there? Who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. And in looking at this, it's kind of interesting. This wouldn't be you know, in the battle for Canaan, because that was a mandatory battle, but this would be in further wars where there was voluntary aspects involved. And what you know, Moses tells the people is that when you're there and you're going to war, you're probably going to, to, you're probably going to need to, to weed out some people. You're probably going to need to do that. You see, in this weeding out within the warriors, again, there's probably an element of truly letting them enjoy their home. I know you're probably saying, hey, Manny, you're being mean. I just want to enjoy their home and enjoy their vineyard and enjoy their you know, new marriage, their wife. And yeah, there's probably an element of that to, to that here. But I think there's another element of weeding out, taking out, casting out the men that are not willing to die, the men who are really distracted with other things. Because you can't have that type of heart when you're in this type of battle. Warren Wiersbe said this, No officer wants to lead distracted soldiers whose minds and hearts are somewhere else. For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so not only does that double-mindedness make for sorry soldiers, it also has the potential to infect the rest of the people. That's what you read there in verse 8. He says, let him go and return to his house. Tell him to go home, please. Get rid of him. Why? Lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. You see, fear and faith cannot coexist within the same heart. And that's why if you remember even Gideon, the story of Gideon, he lost 22,000 due to this. But when you have men of courage and men of cooperation, without hesitation, without reservation, then captains of armies can now lead people who are willing to follow. And that's why he says there at the end of verse 9, okay, then the captains of the armies lead the people. In verse 10 it says, When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it, and it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in you, it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. 
But the woman, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in it, in the city, and all its spoils, you shall plunder for yourself. You shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, this would be Canaan, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. And the Lord here just gives, you know, uh, lessons of war for the children of Israel. You know, he tells them when you guys go in and it's a land that's far away, um, try to make peace with them. You know, try your best to make peace with them. But if they don't want to make peace, you know, you go ahead and you surround it and you conquer it. Uh, kill all the guys, um, but plunder the ladies and the goods for yourself. But as far as the wickedness that was within Canaan, God says, I don't want you to leave anything that's breathing alive. You know, and, and when you read that right there, I know for some that can be a struggle. You're like, wow, God, that, that's pretty severe. You know, and, uh, you know, we don't see that, you know, nowadays in the New Testament. But, but what it is, is it's a visual illustration of how God sees sin. Of how God sees the danger of his people falling back into the ways of the world. And God says, when you're dealing with those things, listen, don't be Mr. Nice Guy. You have to be ruthless. And like I shared earlier with you guys, you know, when I think of my enemies, like a lot of times we've been going through the Psalms lately, and it talks a lot about the enemies. I, I, I know I don't think of men. I don't really think of men as my enemies. I, I do think of the devil. I'm not, not, you know, ignorant of that. But primarily it's me. You guys, if we could just conquer you know, ourselves, we'd be in great shape. That's why the Lord told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Remember that? And what did Saul do? He didn't. He made excuses. He blamed it on the people. And in the end of his life, who killed Saul? It was an Amalekite. And it's not that God's trying to keep you from having fun. And it's not that God's trying to be hard on you. It's that God loves you. And God says, if you don't kill this, it will kill you. And we have to be so careful with sin, influences of the world. Here he says, get rid of them all, lest you learn their ways. There's a really neat scripture over in Psalm 106, verse 35. Speaking of the downfall of Israel, it says, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their work. 
You guys, we can't be dancing with the devil. We can't be flirting with fire. We can't. We can't mingle with those things. First Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. God says, listen, deal ruthlessly with sin lest it come back to kill you. It's kind of interesting in the end right there, verses 19 through 20. God says, listen, I, I don't want you to practice desolation warfare. They were to preserve what was useful, those fruit trees, instead of engaging wholesale destruction of the land. And, you know, basically in looking at that, we see that God is wise, that God cares for his creation, that he's entrusted us as stewards to take care of these things. And God says, listen, you don't need those fruit trees, those typical trees. All you need is what? All you need is me. And you guys, as we have the Lord in our life, you know, the loving, living, holy, awesome, incredible God who made us, who redeemed us, uh, we'll find ourselves living like he does. We'll find ourselves uh, being, you know, totally fair, fair, just people. And we'll find ourselves knowing how to fight. God, can you take care of this? <laughs> and God says, thank you. That's all I was waiting for. And then you have that confidence. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing it is, Father, to be here and just to study your holy word, Lord. Your word is so awesome. You know, even in the Old Testament, Lord. And I, I know you said, Lord, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you, Lord, that we can study the whole Bible together as a congregation. Lord, I pray you bless your beautiful people. Lord, I pray you bless the families, the husbands, the wives, the single people. I pray you would abundantly bless the kids the ministries represented here, Lord, every aspect of this church, the elders, the board members, the overseers, the under rowers, Lord God, the prayer warriors, Father God. I pray, Lord, that you would please have mercy on us, God, and give us, Lord, breathe on us, Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to love you, to really, truly love you and live for you. Thank you, Lord. Do a great work. Be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.